And especially see some new folks, that's very good. So uh, welcome, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we're here at uh, 12.30. At 1 o'clock I'll give a, uh, like a, a service and then 1.30 we have a meal. So you're very, very welcome. Now I've been going through the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, and we're up to chapter 23. And it's all about Paul at the moment. And let's just start with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you, all of us here, in need of you, in need of your grace. All of us here with a conscience. And we want, Father, to be right with you. And we do pray that you will guide each of us to that end. That we might be right with you. And that we might live forever in joy, in the joy of a good conscience. In the joy of being able to see you face to face and to live with you forever and ever in that great kingdom that your son will establish. Please go with us, Father, for his sake. Amen. So, Paul is on trial for his life. And verse 1, Paul looks right at the council, the guys that are trying him, and said, Brothers, I have lived before God in all good conscience until this day. Now, I have talked about that before, but I will repeat it, because there it is in our chapter before us today. Paul had done a lot of bad things. He had tortured Christians to death. Right? And when Jesus appears to him on the, on the road to Damascus, he says to him, Paul, it's really hard for you to kick against the prods. And it's alluding to how an ox or an animal or a horse would be pushed by prods to go a certain direction. And he's saying, Paul, you keep kicking against the prods. In other words, Paul had a conscience, but he was going against it. He had murdered people. He had tortured people, Christian people, to death. Now he says, I've lived before God in all good conscience until this day. You think, I've since when, mate? Well, yes. I don't think he was lying. I don't think he was just like we all tend to do, sort of rewriting your past, thinking, ah, I wasn't too bad a guy. It was all them. It was their fault, not mine. I only did it because of this one or that one or whatever. No. And it's my same question when I read some of the words of King David that he wrote at the end of his life, where he sort of says, oh, I've had a great life with you, God. I've always been upright. I've always done the right thing. Um, yeah, it's been a great life with you, God. And you think, David, hold on. You committed adultery with Bathsheba. You murdered her husband, Uriah. You killed a whole load of people that you didn't need to kill. If you didn't sort of like some guy, you just got his head cut off, or, or this, that, or the other. And you think, David, how can you say that? <coughs> Again, same question with Paul. Paul, how can you say this? I don't think these men were lying. I don't think they were just like sometimes we tend to be, kind of rewriting your past and renegotiating it all and making yourself out to be squeaky clean. No. So how could he say this? <coughs> he says in Hebrews that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses not only from sin, but cleanses the conscience. And I think what he means is that we are forgiven, when we're forgiven by Jesus, we're forgiven to such an extent that the past is somehow cleansed to the point that we feel that it, I didn't do it, that I'm, I'm good, I'm okay. Okay, you know, Paul could say, yeah, sure, I murdered and tortured Christians. Yeah, I did. But I've got a good conscience about it. 
in, in the lips of, on the lips of any other man that would be hypocrisy that would be not being realistic about your past but when you have truly been forgiven by God through the Lord Jesus that is the extent of clean conscience that you can get and we've all got a whole load of dirt in our lives and we've never actually experienced a forgiveness like this because when we fail, when we sin against each other, well, we forgive each other, but it's just play on. You know, as I've said, if you nick 20 quid out of my pocket, it's, oh, I'm really sorry, Duncan. Well, what am I going to do to you? Okay, play on. So you did play on. But you may get home in the evening and think, ah, oh, what a wretch. Why did I do that to Duncan? Or I might feel it about something I did to you. And my forgiveness of you, let's take this 20 quid business. My forgiveness of you can't really do much to your conscience. But when God forgives you, this is a totally different experience. This is a forgiveness that you have never experienced, we have never experienced, from any human being. But that sin is dealt with. It's so dramatic that Paul says, if any man be in Christ, that is by baptism into Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. If I forgive you for nicking 20 quid, well, that doesn't take away your past. That doesn't make you a new creation. But God can do that too. You see, this is why I beg you to get baptised into Jesus. Because the whole symbolism of going into the water and coming out of it, that is like washing. That represents the cleansing of your conscience. And how we do it is, after the service... Come back to my place in South Croydon, we've got a big bathtub, and that's where we do the baptisms. A lot of people here have been baptised in that way. Just into Jesus, not joining any church, not joining any denomination, not all that stuff, not playing games. I'm too old to play games with people anymore. Um, just straight up into Jesus. That's all we're about here, absolutely. So, <clears throat> he says, I've lived before God in all good conscience until this day. It's an amazing statement for a bloke who was a torturer to say. A man who had tortured people to death. And I have told you before, I had a friend in the years I lived in the Soviet Union, a guy who had been a torturer. And he ended up an alcoholic, no surprises there. And he had tortured people. That was part of his job um, in the Soviet years. He had done cigarette lighter on men's testicles to get out of them what he wanted and of course he couldn't live with himself no one can live with themselves when you do that consistently over a period of time but Paul can stand there and say oh, no, I lived in good conscience before God I mean either he's faking it he's just trying to rewrite his past forget it wasn't there but he's not doing that because he often talks about his past and he says I'm chief of sinners it's either that, which it isn't, or it is that something had happened to him, that he had been forgiven to such an extent that he could say, look, I've got a good conscience before God. The past is dealt with. And that's an amazing thing, that the past is dealt with, because without you being committed to Jesus Christ, I don't mean to a church, I mean to Jesus Christ, and to that experience of forgiveness in him, then all you're left with is your past. In the evenings you sit and you think about the past and the mess-ups you made. 
and how it could have been different. But I messed up, and it isn't different. And I'm like I am. And you feel trapped by your past. It's too, too big to deal with. But it can be dealt with, you see. This is the, the amazing good news, which there is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in baptism into him, and accessing by that the huge cleansing of, of human sin and failure that, that he achieved. Well, the high priest, verse 2, Ananias, commanded them that stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Because they thought, ah, oh, that's an incredibly arrogant thing to say. How can you say, I've lived with a good conscience towards God? And so they said, no, hit him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit to judge me according to the Lord. You command me to be struck contrary to the Lord. And they that stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't recognize, brothers, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Well, I think you see there that Paul was a little bit too, too smart by half. He was a great guy. He really was a great, wonderful example of a true Christian. Perhaps the greatest example. But he did have a lot of weakness, just like you and me do. And here he has spoken too quickly. This is what would be called contempt of court, where he makes a smart Alec comment about the, uh, about the judge, and he calls him a name. And they say, how dare you? And he says, verse 5, I didn't recognize, brothers, that he was the high priest. Now, it seems that Paul was partially sighted, if not blind. Why well, I say that? It's because when he's writing to the Galatians, he says, do you not see what, what big letters I'm using in writing this letter? And it shows I'm writing by my own hand. So yeah, he wrote those letters with his own hand, but because he was partially sighted, it was very big handwriting. You can see quite what he was writing. And another reason is when he's writing to the Galatians, he says, when I first came and preached to you, you loved me. And you wanted to pull out your own eyes and give them to me. Which implies that he had a bad eyesight. Maybe no eyesight. So he's saying, oh, oh, sorry, I just cussed the high priest today. Oh, sorry about that. I didn't see him. I didn't see him. I didn't recognize him. But of course he could be saying, I don't recognize him as the high priest because Jesus is my high priest, not this guy. Well, he's, um, he's got in trouble there for contempt of court. And so he again smartly gets himself out of it. Verse 6, when Paul noticed that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I'm called in question. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly, that's the people who were judging him, was divided. But the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees believe in both. And there arose a great clamor, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees stood up and argued, saying, We find no evil in this man. What if a spirit has spoken to him, or an angel? When there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing that Paul would be torn in pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the fortress. 
So the Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. These Jews that were trying Paul were split. Some were Pharisees, some were Sadducees. And so he just divides them. He says, ah, you know what? This is all an argument about resurrection. Because he was saying that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And he says in verse 6, I am a Pharisee. That wasn't really true. He should have said I was a Pharisee. Because he'd come to Christ at this point. He should have said, well, I used to be a Pharisee. My father was a Pharisee. But he says, I am a Pharisee. And oh, this is all an argument about resurrection. I'm saying Jesus resurrected from the dead. Oh, and he, he achieved his attended, intended aim. That he split the court that was trying him. Very smart, Paul. Yeah, 10 out of 10 for smartness. I imagine him, uh, as history says, he was a small guy. Bad eyesight, but very sharp and smart. And uh, too cocky by half, basically. But a great guy. Why am I saying this? Because none of the characters that you meet in the Bible are perfect, apart from the Lord Jesus. They've all got some element of weakness in them. That's a big difference to how it is maybe if you go into a church and you see stained glass windows. And there are these pious saints with white faces, with beautiful calm eyes, praying like, you know, like they're so holy. Actually, no, that, that's not how any human being is. And so, all these characters that you've got, all of them, Peter, he denied Jesus, David, he had an affair, he committed murder, all these guys, they're all going to be saved, but they were all very weak. And that is to help us, because we think, oh yeah, this idea of being a Christian, this idea of being a believer, nice idea, but you see, for me, it doesn't work. Because, and then people come out with all their long list of sins, that, oh, I'm this, I'm that, I'll do this, uh, I, I do drugs, I, I'm an alcoholic, I, I'll do this, I'll do that, oh, it's not for me. Nice idea, mate, but it's not for me. And of course I'm not saying, oh, well, that's fine, don't worry about it. No, that sin is not, oh, that's fine. But it is also so that God does not expect perfection from people. With, you know, literally all due respect to God, if that's what he's seeking, I am afraid he will be disappointed because he only got it in his son, not in any of us. And so, as I say, you see Paul, in my opinion, here, as very often in his life, imperfect. And so if you want to make this move to Jesus, but you feel, ah, come, I'm not, I'm not up to it, I'm not pious. I'm not white-faced and righteous. No, you're not. And nobody is. And that is not to say that it doesn't matter. It is to say that the Lord Jesus is the sinner's friend. You know, he's, he ate with prostitutes, tax collectors, and, and so on. And the, uh, the Jews said, oh, why do you eat with those kind of men and women? They're lowlifes. They're immoral people. And Jesus said, yeah, I'm a doctor. And a doctor came for the sick, not for those who think they don't have a problem. And he said, I, I do this that I might lead them to repentance. In other words, he sat at table with he accepted them, if you like, in fellowship, just as they were. That's a thing, just as I am. 
he accepted them just as they were because that acceptance of them would in turn lead them to repentance. He didn't say, oh, you whores and whatever. Um, yeah, look, if you just quit that, clean your life up, then you know, jump through that hoop, jump over that uh, hurdle, and then I'm waiting for you. No. He said, I, I will sit with you and break my bread with you right now, as you are. As you are. And that will lead you to repentance. That will lead you to change. And people worry so much. Am I, am I good enough? I'm talking to a very dear, dear guy at the moment who tells me that he can't be baptised because at the weekends he often smokes dope. I said, yeah, let's say you do. Well, I can't be baptised till I stop doing that. I said, no, you need it right now. Now is the time you need it. Are you gonna, I said, yeah, are you going to quit that and then come and stand in front of me, bright and bushy-tailed, and say, I'm ready now for Jesus? Oh, get rid of it. You're not, you're not going to be bright and bushy-tailed ever. And if you do think you're all bright and bushy-tailed, and now I'm good enough for Jesus, well, you... <laughs> He is of no use to you, I'm sorry to say. And I also said to him, okay, so big deal, you, you're going to quit the dope, so you tell me. Okay, so I'm going to quit after Christmas. When I've heard all this before. Um, okay, so let's say you do. And then you're going to realise, oh, hey, I've got a huge lack of forgiveness towards my mother, towards my father, towards my ex. Oh, whoops, I've got to deal with that. Oh, whoops, and I'm doing something else wrong. Ah, oh, whoops. I said, yeah, it just goes on and on. It doesn't finish. All you can do is to hands up, surrender, and you know, he is the sinner's friend. It's as simple and straight as that. Jesus is the sinner's friend. It is no more difficult to understand than that. He actually likes sinners who want to come to him. And that is why he ate with the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and so forth. That's Jonathan's favourite song says, what does it say? The vagabonds. The vagabonds, yeah, the vagabonds. Yeah, he, he actually likes people like that, which uh, is uh, a total inversion of, of the uh, old story about, you know, Christianity is for the pious and the righteous. Actually, the message of the Lord is very much against the Pharisees and the people who were self-righteous, religiously intolerant bigots. There probably weren't more than 5,000 Pharisees in the whole of Israel, in Palestine, at the time of the Lord. But the Gospel records seem to record a disproportionate amount about the Lord's interaction with those people. As if to, to, to just show us where he really stands, what he likes and what he does not like. What he doesn't like is this fake religious, religiosity, piety and so forth. So, poor old Paul, he was a bit too sharp by half. But he achieves his end, he makes his judges all get <laughs> cranky with each other. He says, oh, this is an argument about resurrection, isn't it? I, I, I'm a Pharisee. Oh, all the Pharisees say, no, no, he's a good, good bloke, you can't condemn it. All the Sadducees are saying, no, there's no resurrection. Oh, he's a Pharisee, I'll condemn it. Well, like verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him, the Lord Jesus. 
and said, Take courage, for as you've testified concerning me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify in Rome. Take courage. In other words, Paul was really weak. He needed encouragement, so much so that the Lord Jesus himself appeared to him in prison that night and said, Take courage. Keep going. And yet, as he would have appeared in the eyes of men, he was this short, smart, cocky bloke who managed to get himself out of a lot of trouble by some very astute uh, uh, play with words. Very sharp guy. And he would have been thinking, oh, yes, kudos to me. No, actually, that night he wasn't feeling that at all. That was all a front. There's a couple of seats in the back, guys. That was all a front. And inside he was this frightened little boy. And that is who even the toughest, hardest consciences are. We're all frightened little, little children, little boys and girls, really. And yet we can be saved by him and have your conscience completely cleansed so that like Paul, you can take courage. So we're going to remember the Lord Jesus. We're going to take the bread that represents his body and the cup that represents his blood. And these things show that I want to identify myself with him. Now, the first thing you do in the Christian life to identify yourself with him is to get baptised. Go in the water, die with Jesus, you come up out of the water, it's like resurrection. The first thing you do. But this taking the, the bread and the cup is another sign that I identify with him, that I want him. And again, the blood of Jesus, we're told, is what can cleanse even the conscience. Even the conscience. So that a guy like Paul could stand there and say, I've served God and lived to this day in good conscience. It's an amazing statement. This is the power of the blood of Jesus, which we now identify ourselves with by taking this cup. So let's give thanks. Heavenly Father, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the Lord, for his body, for his blood, and we pray that it might truly cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve you, the living God, for Jesus. Say.